1 John 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And Father, we just ask that as we continue now in our worship, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, prepare us, help our hearts to be attentive and receptive, Lord. Take away that which would distract or in any way keep us from hearing every single thing that the voice of your Spirit will want to say to each and every one of us individually and collectively. So, Lord, we ask that you would speak through what you have spoken already in the word of God by your spirit's ministry now. And we pray that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it is true that what we love will always drive and dictate how we live. Let me say that again. What we love will always drive and dictate how we live. And so because of that, you can always tell what truly matters to someone, what their greatest affection is or their greatest desire or love is by simply just observing their life, where their dedication is at, where their primary investments are, where they'll make sacrifices, what their focus is upon. And since how we live indicates what we love and since what we love also then dictates how we will live, It's important to pay attention to what we allow ourselves to develop love for, whether that's a person, whether that's a possession, whether that's things of this world. It is very, very important to guard our heart and to pay attention what we will allow ourselves to develop love for, because what we love will drive and dictate how we live and how we live is indicating the very things that we love. And that's why John here strongly cautions and counsels us to not love this present world system and the things of this world, which are clearly anti God, which are under the sway of the devil's unseen influence, persuading and directing in an unseen way what's happening, and all of which is completely temporary and none of it's going to last. It's in the process of passing away even at this moment. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 17, when he was praying to the Father there, Jesus said as Christians that we are called to live in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And Jesus even said, Father, I I didn't take them out of the world, and I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to protect them from the evil one. While they're in this world, in fact, Jesus even said, I've sent them out into the world, even as the father sent Jesus into this world, we've been sent into this world. So we're not called to to be taken out of this world. We're called to live in the world, but we're not to be, the Bible says, according to Jesus, of this world, our origin, our direction, our basis. That is, we're called out of this population of the unsaved world under the governing direction of godless and worldly ways, we've been called out of that to now walk worthy of a calling we've received as children of God and as Christians. We've been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but yet we're on foreign soil on temporary assignment. Until we go home to where our citizenship is in heaven, now we are on this earth as ambassadors of Christ to represent him and his purposes. But in order to do that, no, we're on foreign assignment here. It's important while living in the world that we make sure that we don't conform to the patterns of this world, that we don't become overly attached to this present world and all that's involved within it, caring about it too much and start functioning, functioning, get that out of there, functioning (laughs) in the way that the rest of the world does and that we guard our hearts against that and our love and our attachments towards those very things. And the reason why is if we fall in love with the world and we begin to love the things of the world, what begins to happen is we start to defeat the very purposes of God saving us. 
which is that we would still be in the world, but that we wouldn't be like everything and everyone else in the world, that we would be salt and light, and we would bring other people to Jesus by that distinction in our lives. Because Jesus understands this, and it's what John is alluding to here in our section, that worldliness in the Christian or worldliness in the church is a great deterrence to healthy spirituality. And it will completely diminish the purposes of God for our life. It hinders our relationship with, the God, with God. It makes us unfruitful spiritually. And it really, in many ways, ruins our witnesses for Christ. So John here, we see in our section, is cautioning Christians against this contagious infection of worldliness and in allowing ourselves to be infected by the contagion of worldliness and become a worldly Christian, which manifests unhealthy and very unpleasant symptoms. And this is what the elderly John, this 90-year-old Christian who's walked with Jesus for decades and decades and has been a spiritual leader for decades and decades, is saying, look, I don't want you to end up having a saved soul and a wasted life during the time you live as a Christian on this earth. And that is possible. And this is what John is concerned about and what he is cautioning us as his readers about. And there are very clear emphasis, you can tell, of the Holy Spirit in verses 15, 16, and 17 in this passage about how we relate to the world. Now, before we jump into the verses, let me preface our, our study by, by bringing to your attention. You notice in our verses six times the word world appears in these three verses. So this is a very clear indication of the spirit. Look, it matters to God how we relate to the world. Now, at the outset of this study, it's important to clearly understand what does that mean? What does that imply? And what I mean by that is the context of the word world when it's used in the scripture is is the thing that determines what is meant by it the context of how it's being used indicates to us what the world means for example in john three sixteen, probably the most famous bible verse most people know jesus said for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life wait a minute god so loves the world but then it says right here, don't love the world. That's confu- Well, in that sense, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. It's a reference to the humanity, the people of the world. It's regarding all of the human beings in this world on the earth. In that sense, the context is very clear. John said earlier in chapter two, back in verse two, that Jesus himself is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment to appease God's wrath for our sins and not for our sins only, but notice for the sins of the whole world. Again, referring to all of humanity, all of the people on the earth. So these are clearly references to the word world in regards to the people of the earth. And God clearly loves all the people of the world. And we should love all the people of the world as well. However, that being said, we see other occasions, case in point, our passage this morning, where the word world is not referring to the people on this planet. It's not referring even to the physical creation, but to a fallen system and order of mankind that operates in the world. This broken system of this present world that was built by humanity, by sinful man in their denial and rebellion of God. And this present world system, because it has rebelled against God from the Garden of Eden and has rejected God's word and rejected God's rule, as a result, there are certain ways and patterns that make up a system, a world system, that is an operation the cosmos is the term that's used in the Greek, this order, this ordered system of this present world that are very clearly operating with humanistic ideas, with ideologies that are corrupt, that are self-centered, human reasoning, that are completely anti-God and anti-anything that is righteous or good and wholesome. And that's what characterizes how this broken world functions. 
And that's the idea that John's alluding to here. When he talks about not loving the world and the things of the world, the system of this unsaved world, all of its pleasures and its possessions and the things that are esteemed by man as important, and then all the ideologies and the views and the ways the world operates, its patterns that are broken and sinful. And that's clear the idea here. And you could tell that because John says right there in verse 15, don't love the world or the things. Notice that? He says that we're the things of the world. He's not talking about the people of the world. He's talking about the things that exist in this world, their influences, corrupt ways, sinful ideals, material possessions, infatuation with pleasure. That, that's what John's honing in on here. Notice he starts in verse 15 with a direct command that we are called to embrace as Christians. He says right at the beginning of verse 15, look at it there. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, the Greek is in the present imperative, which implies this. What is being conveyed there is actually do not keep on loving the system of this world. The language is basically indicating stop loving the world because you're already doing such. That's what John's conveying there. What John is communicating, stop loving the world, cease loving worldly things as you are doing right now. So what John's conveying is both an indictment as well as an instruction at the exact same time. The indictment is coming from this, again, aged apostle. I mean, you have this 90-year-old-plus Christian man who's been walking with Jesus since he was a teenager so he's logged lots of mileage with his walk with Christ. He's been a, a, a church leader for decades upon decades. And as he assesses the Christians and the church at that time, his indictment as he sees among believers is John is saying, it's evident to me as this 90-year-old man who's about to enter into the presence of Jesus. It's evident to me, John said, as he wrote to these Christians, that you are struggling with loving the world system. And I wish you would cease doing that. It, it's clear to me by the way that you're living and conducting yourself that the ways and the ideals of this world and all the present material things that go along with it, they seem to have captured your heart. And it seems that the world has come in and has seduced the church and Christians in such a way where Christians are just as much in love with the present world, even as the unsaved world. And John saw that as almost like cheating on God. And it broke his heart. And so he speaks in this present imperative, please, would you cease loving the world the way that you're loving the world? And at the same time, clearly, obviously, it's also an instruction that none of us should become guilty of loving the world and the things in the world. John is also saying, don't allow yourself to do this. Keep yourself on constant guard of this. Resist the lure of the world. Do what you can to resist the attraction of, of the world and its system and all that it sells as it tries to seduce you into a love relationship with it. The instruction of the Holy Spirit is be on guard. Don't allow yourself to enter into an intimate affection with the present world. Keep yourself on guard from that. And the reason, of course, is because loving some things are not good for us, right? One of the confusions that we have is we want to promote love, 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 everything love and love wins. Well, it doesn't take a rocket science to realize loving some things are not good. Loving some things are destructive, right? There are people who love drugs. Is that good for them? But they love it, right? They love indulging drugs. They're literally infatuated and addicted and they love their drugs, and it's overtaken their life. And what's it doing? It's ruining their life, right? There are people who, who love certain things that are self-destructive, that are damaging to them. And, and so loving everything is not always good. There are some things that we love that we aren't good for us to love. And so the Bible is simply conveying to us in a sense of reason here that loving some things can mislead us. Loving some things can distract us. 
They can take us down tours of, of paths that we shouldn't be on, blind us, ruin us. And certainly love for sinful things is never right. Love for sinful things is always damaging. It dishonors God and it's nothing but you know, destructive to our lives. So loving corrupt and worldly ways, John is saying here, of this humanistic pattern that exists in this world, loving all the physical things that exist on the planet, ultimately, John's concern is, is it will make us, if we love those things, start to be a worldly Christian. It will start to make the church become very worldly and selfish and materialistic rather than spiritual, rather than kingdom-minded, rather than living with an open hand on everything that's tangible and caring most about spiritual. That's why the Bible tells us to walk worthy of the spiritual calling that we've received, to walk worthy of that. Colossians 3 says it this way, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So after John here, under the leading of the Spirit, commands us to stop giving into our tendency, which we all wrestle with, with loving this present world and the things of this world, and that we need to resist that, John then gives to us, as he goes on here, some reasonings, or you might say some incentives, to take serious that instruction. And John says, if you need incentive why I'm instructing you not to love the world and not to fall in love with the things of the world and, and to keep yourself from that, he says, let me give you some incentives, some reasonings. And this is what he does in the remainder of the verses. He then goes on to say, after saying, don't love the world or the things of the world, verse 15, he goes on to say, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So one reason we should not love the world or fall in love with the things of the world is because love for the world will displace love for God within our lives. Love for the world will displace or replace love for God. Loving this present world system will have this tendency to replace proper love experience in our relationship with God in a way that is not good. It will hinder our ability to experience God's love for us fully. And it will also restrict our ability to responsibly love God the way that we should and that we're called to. So John strongly declares that our love for the world actually reveals a condition that God says is true about us. And in verse 15, you notice he's describing a condition. He says, if when, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, the love of God, he says, is not in him. In other words, the Bible's saying that's what has happened. As a result of loving the world, what has happened is the love of God has been diminished in our lives. Whether we identify that or not, that is the resulting effect. The Bible says that's actually what has happened, whether we realize it. If anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in him it's kind of diminished and somewhat disappeared from the way it would normally be operating. Because if we love God, we, we can only love God fully to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember, Jesus is going to talk about later on in the Gospels, he talks about how you can't love two masters. And so understanding that, John says here, look, if we love the world, what we are doing, whether we realize or not, is we're interfering with healthy love relationship with God and we're basically quenching and resisting the work of the Holy Spirit from happening properly within our heart. And the issue is love for the world. Here's the problem. Love for the world is not compatible with love for God. The, the two can't be compatible because the world system has always been opposed to God. It's opposed to God's ways. It's satanically directed and the Bible says to even become friendly with the world, not even to love it. The Bible says, even if I become friendly with the world, I'm making myself into an enemy of God. James chapter four, verse four says it this way, very strongly. James says to Christians, adulterers, adulteresses. Now he's using that idea spiritually like committing spiritual adultery, that that's God's perspective. Like as a husband towards a wife, in God's heart, it feels like a violation of adultery. And so he says, adulterers, adulteresses, do you not know 
that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's strong language, isn't it? Well, it only goes without saying then because of that and because the world is an enmity to God and all of the involved in the world strongly opposes God and operates in opposition to God like an enemy to God and everything that is good, godly, holy and righteous. That's why the Bible says here to love the world is completely contradictory because the ordered system of the unsaved world is under the rulership of the devil himself. Jesus said that. Jesus said in in the Gospel of John that Satan is the ruler of this world. John's going to say later on in this very letter, 1 John chapter 5, that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. And it doesn't take a whole lot of observation. I hope for you it doesn't anyway, right? To just notice what happens within our world. I mean, when you look within our unsaved world and the practices and the patterns and the fears and brazen antagonism in this world to the ways of God. I mean, the the fierce antagonism and opposition to everything that is righteous, anything that is moral, anything that is good or wholesome or appropriate, the world despises it, right? The world's not just passive towards it. There's this fierce antagonism towards it. Anything that's good or wholesome or righteous, it's like this fierce attack against it. Well, that just lines up with what the word of God says. Galatians 1.4 speaks of this present evil age. And that word evil that he used there, present evil age, is literally a term that is not a passive term in the Greek towards evil, but it's an aggressive form of evil. The Bible has two different terms for the word evil. One is a passive evil, which is basically like Let's use an analogy. You have a really grumpy old next door neighbor who's just mean and nasty, but he just stays to himself. He's just a mean, nasty old person, and he doesn't want anything to do with anybody. That's passive evil, just content to be evil and miserable. Do evil things all by yourself. Then there's another form of evil that is not satisfied unless it's drawing everyone else into its evil with it. And it's not content just being evil it also is going to force you to be evil with it. And you're going to accept my evil, you're going to endorse my evil, and you're going to participate in my evil. And anything I can reel you into my evil, that's the term, present evil age. This aggressive evil that wants to draw everyone else into it to participate, that's how the Bible describes this present evil age. Philippians 2 speaks of this crooked and perverse generation. Paul, writing to our lives before we were Christians, spoke of how one at one time before we were saved, he says, you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. And he says, all of us once lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. So the Bible says there is a way of this world and there is a spiritual undercurrent, which, of course, is the devil in his demonic realm that is unseen, that is guiding the ideologies of this world, the the, the mindsets, the perspectives, the patterns, all that comes to the viewpoints of humanity, the reason why people want to do things the way they do. And what that is, is satanically inspired now. For that very reason, what God is simply declaring through John here in his word when he says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of God, it can't be operating in you. Why? Because in essence, John's saying, how can we love something that Satan is directing? How can we love something that is governed by by a principle that is completely defiled and polluted. And in some ways, we do have to choose what we will love, right? Even as in human relationships, you can't genuinely, and I emphasize genuinely, you can't genuinely love two people romantically at the same time. You can't genuinely love your spouse and be in love with someone else. It's not possible. You can only genuinely love one person. Well, God in the word of God often portrays himself like a husband. 
And so therefore, if God wants a husbandly love and wants to be married to us spiritually and we're married to him, he wants our foremost devotion of love towards him, right? What did Jesus say when they asked him? What's the greatest commandment? What, what, what's the greatest thing you want from us? Jesus reduced it all to one thing. You shall love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love God supremely. And Jesus said, we can't have two masters. We're always gonna love one and we're gonna despise the other. And it's just the natural outcome of the way that we're wired. So we have to make a choice who and what we'll love. And if we choose to love the world, if we choose to love the things of the world, that will always, he says here in verse 15, it will always displace and diminish our love for God. And I tell you folks, that will be evidenced by how we live out our lives. It will be evidenced by that. For example, Lot's wife. Lot could not get his wife out of Sodom quick enough. And even when he got her out of Sodom, he couldn't get Sodom out of her. And she looked back with longing with everything that the world and its system was there. And what did it do? It ruined her own life personally and it damaged and defiled her family's future because she loved the world and she couldn't let go of it. Again, Paul speaks in the New Testament of a man named Demas, who Paul says he forsook and abandoned his commitment to serve the Lord. And Paul says, having loved this present world, Demas abandoned us. And sometimes people's love for the present world system and all it has to offer them, they will abandon commitment to Christ. They'll abandon serving the Lord. Because they love the present world too much. Well, if I serve the Lord, you mean I have to give up this or that or, or, or give up that or that career path? If I, and so some people will abandon serving the Lord. Demas was serving the Lord. They'll abandon serving the Lord because they love the present world too much and they just can't let go of it. So Jesus himself spoke about the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches. Remember, he said, will choke out spiritual life. And so this is something that is just a reality that we all have to keep on guard against as Christians because it's never a good condition to be lacking an experience of love with God because we've fallen too much in love with the world and the things of the world. Jude tells us, keep yourself in the love of God. Got to keep ourselves there, loving God so that we don't end up falling in love too much with this present world system. And John shows further reason and incentive why that's important. In verse 16, he then says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, he says, it's not of the father, it's not of the origin of God, but is of the world. So notice all that's an operation in the world system, what's chiefly governed and directed by, he says, it's not of God, he says in this verse here. In other words, God is not the one who is the source of what's happening in this present world system. He's not behind such things. He's not directing what's happening, nor is he, I would say, pleased with a lot of how the world functions, nor is he cooperating with. He is continuously at battle with the ways and the patterns and the practices of this world and its affairs because it's operating in rebellion to him and trying to stop everything that is good, godly, and wholesome. That's why he says it's not of God, rather it's all of the world. That is the spirit of this fallen world. Such things oppose God and oppose his will and bring nothing but defilement to what happens on this earth. So John being led by the spirit here in verse 16 identifies three, if you could say, major components of things that are being directed by and constantly facilitated among human beings in this present world system that are constant struggles, we might say. Constant struggles in our sinful human nature as broken people that we will battle with. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you can trace these things through scripture. When the devil brought his first temptation against humanity with Eve in the garden, go read the book of Genesis chapter 3. He tempted her by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He knew 
These are the three weak points. When Satan even tried to tempt Jesus, Luke chapter four, when Jesus was living as man in a human body, look at the three temptations brought to Jesus, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And so the devil knows and always tries to exploit these areas of weakness because he knows this is a constant struggle broadly for human beings. What are these three things? He mentions first the lust of the flesh. And that word lust there isn't just a word referring to sexual connotation. It's a word that just speaks of strong craving or strong desire. It speaks of just a strong longing, an intense longing to be satisfied. So he says this strong craving or lust and longing to be satisfied of the flesh. And when the Bible uses the term flesh, it's not referring to the physical body, flesh and blood or flesh and bones. When the Bible uses the term flesh in this sense, it's referring to what we often call our sinful nature. That is the inward corrupt nature that all of us have that we're born with that manifests itself very strongly with these desires to do wrong things with cravings to do things that are not pleasing to god with longings to satisfy ourselves in selfish and improper ways the flesh is that broken perverse selfish inward part of us that rebels against god and wants to satisfy itself and it doesn't care if God's dishonored and people are hurt in the process, right? This is what Paul refers to himself in Romans chapter seven, and he'd been a Christian for many, many years, decades at that point. And Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, my sin nature, Paul said, nothing good dwells. There's nothing good there. Paul said, it's not enough to say, oh, let's turn over a new leaf. Paul said, I've turned it back and forth a thousand times. There's nothing good there. All I find there is the things I don't wanna do I keep wanting to do those things. And the things I don't want to do, my flesh keeps doing those things. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do those things. I keep doing the things. And Paul says it's a constant battle continuously within me, this evil power like gravity pushing down on the inside, always fighting against it. And all of us understand this struggle of these strong desires within us to do what's wrong, to do what's evil, to do what's rebellious, to selfishly satisfy ourselves, to fulfill appetites that arise within us, to do things that we know are wrong, that are selfish, that are hurtful. Every one of us experiences cravings within us, whether we want to acknowledge it outwardly or not. We all wrestle with cravings within us for improper pleasures, to do inappropriate things, to behave in ways that are selfish and hurtful, to gratify ourselves in ways that are outside of God's design and outside of God's will. And that can be satisfying even normal God-given desires in just God-forbidden ways, right? There are certain desires we have within us. The Bible's not talking about, you know, our, our flesh in the sense that it's corrupt of, you know, the desire we have for food, or to, to need to, to drink, or, or even God-given desires within us for sexual pleasure. God created those things. Those things were created and designed before sin ever polluted the world in Genesis 3. That was all given to man in Genesis 2, when God said, it's all good. So there are certain desires we have. The problem is, this corrupt inward nature within us takes natural, healthy, God-given, normal desires and tries to persuade us to satisfy them in God-forbidden ways. So the flesh says, that's a God-given desire, but why don't you satisfy it in this God-forbidden way? And there are many different ways that we can do that. Of course, the obvious, you know, gratifying sexual desires, that's a God-given desire. But in any way we gratify our sexual appetite or desire as a human being in any wrong way outside of the single narrow covenant marital relationship between one biological born male, and we have to say this nowadays, and one biologically born female, Anything outside of that, homosexuality, heterosexuality, bestiality, whatever's going to be the next thing on the agenda nowadays, it's all wrong. It's taking a natural God-given desire 
and in the flesh fulfilling and satisfying it in a God-forbidden way by giving into a craving to satisfy ourselves in a selfish, wrong way that's outside of God's design. Again, our sinful flesh at times craves to indulge the pleasure, again, maybe of, of substances in an improper way. Oh, I have a thirst drive. Right, but that doesn't mean you're supposed to get drunk. Well, I'm thirsty. Well, drink water then. And see, just you can take natural desires, but we satisfy them in God-forbidden ways. Oh, I want to have some peace of mind. I want to have some pleasure. So, but, but you don't satisfy that by then putting yourself you know, full of narcotics to where you go into some ridiculous state where you lose your faculties and can't control yourself and could ultimately put yourself to death as you become overdosed on some substance to just take a temporary disconnection because you want a little peace in your life. And we can satisfy our flesh in so many ways by just being cruel and hurtful in the way that we treat people, right? Somebody offends you, somebody makes you mad. Okay, that's normal and natural. God gave you the capacity to get angry, but the Bible says, but in your anger, what? Sin not. Oh, I don't get angry. I'm a Christian. I don't get angry. You're not a real Christian, bro. <laughs> if there are certain things that don't make you angry as a Christian, something's wrong with you. Right? We're supposed to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. And there are times when we experience anger, but when we get angry, our flesh, our sin nature, wants us to use our anger destructively rather than constructively managing it and, and channeling it in a proper way and, and handling it appropriately. So there are so many ways that our sin nature just you know, makes us be selfish and, and that craving. And most, listen, most of the pattern of this unsaved world and this, again, as John says, don't love the world and the things of the world like the lust of the flesh. The way the lust of the flesh is conducted out there in the world is you have the right and the acceptable privilege to satisfy your cravings however you want. You're entitled to that. The message and the mantra of the unsaved world is you can indulge and gratify your desires. In fact, the world would say to you and I, the presence of a desire is the indication that you should satisfy that. And God would say, that's wrong. God says, there are lots of desires, Tony, that are going to arise within you that are wrong. And they're desires to be refused. They're desires to say, yes, I want that, or I want to act like that, or say that, or behave like that, but that would be sinful. That would be wrong. It would be destructive to behave like that or speak like that or think like that. And so, again, the world wants to tell us nothing wrong with indulging your desires. The world will say to us, there is no longing that should be restrained. And can I simply say the world's way is doing what? Just take inventory. It's ruining lives all over the planet. It's causing families to be destroyed. It's harming people, and it is causing a moral landslide. A moral landslide. The more we, you know, you know kind of make concessions more and more, okay, well, if that's your desire, I guess you were born that way, then, okay, I get, if that's your desire, I mean, just, if you have the desire for it, I mean, that's, then everybody, love it. If you love it, then do it. Once you start that, where does that stop? Because then every next person that comes along says, well, for years you told them that was wrong and immoral, but now it's freely accepted. In fact, now it's even legal. Well, this is my desire. I just, I just, I, I like being with five-year-old little girls. It's what I like. You told them for years what they liked was wrong, and now you let them do it. And now, in fact, you celebrate them. You gave them their own month. This is my hunger. Don't. And so then all of a sudden, how are you not going to show partiality? See, a five-year-old could tell us this is crazy. But as Christians, how much more important that we recognize the lust of the flesh needs to be bridled and restrained within us? Because we need to hold up some standard of distinction from what's chaotically happening out in the world. And so John says, don't give in. Don't let the lust of the flesh begin to, to, to guide you. Peter says in his writings that we're to abstain from the fleshly lust that war against our soul. And I don't know about you, I like that language because that's what it's like sometimes, isn't it? 
to abstain from your fleshly lust, it's like a war. It's a battle, but, but that's the idea. You got to battle it. You got, you got to win the war. You got to battle it by the power of God and the word of God and the people of God and overcome rather than give into it. He says another problem with us oftentimes that triggers us is not the lust of the flesh, but also the lust of the eyes. And that the idea there is the appetite of our eyes to look upon things which we should not. You know, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but our eyes have an appetite and they crave to look at certain things. They crave to see certain things. And when we feast our eyes on certain things, then what happens as we feast our eyes on certain things, it arouses desires within us. And all of a sudden that lust of the eyes causes desires and passions and things to be inflamed within us. Again, whether that's sexually, whether that's materially, whether that's envy, the eye has appetites and the eye is never satisfied, is it? No matter how much you see, you always as a human being in your sinfulness will want to crave to see more. And as our eyes see things, they yearn for things that are not right. As wrong desires are stirred within that are not proper, they're not healthy, they're not in accordance with God's plan for us. Again, whether it's looking at you know, pornography and then inflaming sexual lusts and arousal within us in an improper way that are perverse, whether it's you know, instigating disc, you know, discontentment within us. You know, lust of the eyes isn't just, oh, I can't believe that Christian that struggles with pornography or that person struggles with pornography. The lust of the eyes can just be inflaming materialism within yourself. Because you're always here or there, you're you know, seeing what everybody else in the world has or what kind of car that person is driving. Oh, look at their house. Oh, my goodness. I'm just, oh, we live in a shack. Oh, my goodness. Look what they have. And then all of a sudden, what's happening? With your eyes, you're feasting upon what other people have and just greed and covetousness and discontent like a monster is arising within you. you know, or the old infamous, I don't, God bless those of you who do the, oh, oh. Oh, oh, and the salvation is dripping down their mouths, the lust of the eyes. Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, look what they got. Look who they're married. Look, look what they're look where they're at again. Right. Lust of the eyes. And we just keep looking and looking. And the more we look, the more we want. And we're just struggling. And all of a sudden, all these desires are being aroused within us. And we want the better lifestyle and this. And we need the better car and the better house and the. You know, just this spirit of materialism, the nicer thing, and this isn't good enough, and I need that. Oh, I know they're selling these now. Now they got that. They got this version of that. And then all of a sudden, right, this whole process happens because the lust of our eyes is just breeding within us this hunger for better things and more things. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but when it just starts to dominate our life in an unhealthy way, that becomes the problematic thing. Sometimes the lust of the eyes, I think, can even just be having your focus on even a better position in life. You see someone else that has a certain status or role and you start craving and wanting the same thing and letting the appetite of the eye create unhealthy cravings within us is just something that really starts to get us off track real quick. And it can bring us down roads that are not good. Again, 1 Timothy 6 speaks of it in this way, I believe. He says this, now godliness with contentment is great gain. That's how you can tell you're getting somewhere. For we brought nothing into the world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those, listen, those who desire to be rich, and look, that can be rich people who want to get richer. They asked Rockefeller, I believe it was Rockefeller, or some wealthy person of old, how much is, like, how much is really enough? As a very wealthy person, and, and he said, just a little bit more. But the reality is you can be someone who has no connection or you're not even close to affluence and you can desire to be rich too because you're going, I'm sick and tired of struggling. I'm tired of living paycheck to paycheck. I'm tired of just getting by. We need more. We need better. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trying to advance yourself, but the desire to be rich can get unhealthy and out of control in a rich person and in a middle-class person and in a poor person. And he says here, the desire for riches, when that begins to happen, listen, he says, people fall into temptations 
and snares and of the many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money. Notice, not money. Money's neutral. The love of money becomes the root of all kinds of evil, which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He says, but you, man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love. So again, that lust of the eyes, boy, it can really, cause a person to wreak havoc on their spiritual lives. People, you know, can begin to walk away from the Lord because a spirit of materialism monopolizes their life. People can cease serving the Lord or not answer a calling from the Lord. People can, in many ways, just get so off track just because of that struggle of what the eyes are craving and looking after. And then the third thing he mentions in our verse there, not only the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, but also the struggle with the pride of life and the pride of life just speaks of being proud of position. Uh, it's it's the idea of longing and, and and hungering for admiration, always wanting to be perceived as important, craving to be noticed. Oftentimes, again, that pride of life is what makes us enjoy and somewhat have an appetite for being perceived with a certain image in front of other people. We want to be perceived as important, someone who's successful, someone who whatever. And oftentimes that pride of life begins to be something then as we start to think we're special or we want to give the impression that we're more important than others. And then that then all of a sudden triggers abuse of power and position and you feel you're entitled because you're special. You have this position or this status or this title and the pride of life makes something start to become growing like a monster within a person because as they crave the status and they love the admiration or we enjoy being admired or looked up to, whatever it may be, it just starts to create this very unhealthy thing where pride is directing our life instead of humility governing our life. And that's not good for any of us. And look, I've often said before from this pulpit, but it's worthy of restating, pride is like the mother of all sins. Because it manifests itself in so many ways, just like you can have lots of kids and they all come out a little different, right? Pride gives birth to so many of the other sins that end up happening in our lives because pride manifests itself in lots of different ways. And the pride of life can be this very destructive thing where we, again, our flesh, our flesh craves to be admired. Our flesh longs to get attention from people, whether healthy attention or good intention. Look, pride is what characterized Satan and led to Satan's defilement as a person, right? And it's what led to his downfall. In the same way, the pride of life defiles many people's characters. It's the thing that sadly tarnishes and pulls people down it pollutes their motives and it hinders us folks from living like jesus who was a humble servant that's what jesus espoused not seeking glory of men but wanting to glorify god jesus espoused deflecting glory and trying to seek god to be glorified and to minimize people from glorifying us or thinking we're important you know there's a man diotrephes referred to in second uh, excuse me third john and it said diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence he was a popular guy in the church and the reason why he was the he was the first new testament rock star we got lots of them nowadays but he was the first new testament rock star he loved the preeminence he loved to always be the center of the show he loved that religious applause and, and just all that goes along with it. Oh, you're so spiritual. Oh, you're so smooth and charismatic. Oh, yeah. And Diotrephes loved, he says he loved it. He loved the preeminence. He loved being the big shot among Christians. He loved being the individual that everybody was excited about. And he loved controlling people. Read second, read third John. He loved abusing his power and manipulating, controlling people because he loved the preeminence and he would do anything to keep the preeminence. And that is something grotesque that God says, I'm opposed to that. So the Bible says God opposes the proud, opposes it, resists it, gives grace to the humble. So again, this is an area we want to be very cautious of because it will diminish the spirit of Jesus from being that thing that governs our life 
the pride of life. And all three of those things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, again, these are areas the devil will constantly try and exploit to make us worldly Christians. And we have to resist those things and be on guard against those very things. John concludes verse 17, again, saying one more incentive is that the world is passing away and all the lusts, the cravings and desires of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So again, if I could emphasize one more time, John, this aged apostle, he's 90 years old. He's 90 years old. This guy's been walking with Jesus for decades And John, at his age and that maturity in a spiritual life, he says, you know, if I could give you one last incentive, it's just about perspective. Because he says everything in this world and the things of this world and the system of this world, John says the world and the things of the world, look what he says. He says, it's all passing away. And the Greek there literally is it's in the process of fading and failing. Not that it's going to pass away. He says it's already in the process. It's a failed system, he's saying. It is a system, all that's a part of this world. It's all so temporary, John says, because one day God's going to dispose of it all. One day God is going to intervene and he's going to light the match and he's going to get rid of the whole broken system of this world. So what John is saying, it's almost he's like an investor here, like an old man. He says, that's a really bad investment. That's like investing in something that is destined to fail. So he says to us as Christians, don't invest in something that is destined to end in complete failure, all that humanity is investing in. He's saying, however, in contrast, look what he says, verse 17, he who does the will of God abides or remains forever. So John says here, doing God's will, that has great long-term investment because everything connected to that remains forever. One translation says it this way, the person who does what pleases God is part of what is permanent and will last forever. So whether it's accepting the will of God, which is embracing Jesus Christ for salvation and knowing that your eternal destiny in heaven is sealed, that's going to remain and last forever. Whether it's living according to the will of God, whether it's living according to what God's word says, whether it's investing in eternal things with our time and our energy and our effort, those are the things that are going to last and exist forever. And those who live that way, I tell you this, will not be disappointed. There will be no regrets. There'll be only things to benefit and to gain. You know, it's often been said before, we've heard it, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, Jim Elliott, the missionary who lost his life very early on as a young man said this, he is no fool. To give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. You know, John gives this exhortation to all of us as Christians. He says, please, I'm 90 years old. I'm about to go be with Jesus. If I could give you one word of advice, John says, don't waste your life serving the ways of this world. Invest your life by serving God and the things of his kingdom and you'll win with no regrets. Let's stand together. Let's pray.